Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, it's uh, exciting to be back. We had a, uh, I want to welcome back those of you who were in Mexico last week. So uh, a lot of you were down there. Uh, yeah, we had about uh, 60 people down there. Uh, had an amazing time. I, I've talked to several people who said it was the best trip ever. Uh, we were building three houses for the poor down there. And uh, these, these homes normally take five days to build, the organization we work with. But we knocked them out in three days. They said, you know, this amazing uh, uh, job. And so that was fantastic. Uh, also, you know, we cut off uh, donations for that, uh, kind of the water wells that were drilling in Liberia uh, for the poor there. And, uh, and yet the money still came in. And so we, uh, we're now over $30,000 for that. So that's a third year in a row. Uh, so just thank you for uh, participating in those things. And uh, we're going to be going into our time of teaching now. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And inside of your program is a message note sheet that uh, we use every week for this time of teaching. And so if you're brand new, uh, you'll definitely want to pull that out to help you follow along. So if you guys are all set, ready to go, uh, I'm ready to go. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just uh, thankful to be here, to be uh, under your leadership in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, what he's done for us, and who he continues to be, how he leads, guides, directs, empowers, changes and, uh, and prepares us to follow him. So today as we talk about what it means to be part of his family, what that looks like, we pray that uh, you would be with us. We pray you'd guide us and teach us in your name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in now since the start of the year uh, called Jesus the King. And so for those who are brand new, special welcome to you. Uh, this is a series that really uh, flows out of the heart of one of the, the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name was Mark. He was a close friend and associate of the Apostle Peter. And so towards the end of Peter's life, uh, either right before Peter was crucified or right after Peter was crucified for his faith, uh, Mark writes down uh, his memoirs, kind of what he'd learned from Peter, his uh, uh, firsthand experiences uh, of the life and teaching of Jesus. And so that's what we're studying. Now, the last few weeks, we've seen that the conflict uh, uh, surrounding Jesus has been rising. The religious leaders are are uh, really beginning to challenge him. And if you were here uh, last weekend, uh, we saw that uh, it had gotten to sort of a new level because some religious leaders have now traveled all the way from Jerusalem in the south, made the long trip to the north to Galilee. And uh, when they get there, they actually accuse Jesus that uh, the secret of his power, the source of his power, was actually demonic, that he was like a warlock. He was channeling uh, satanic power, and that's what allowed him to, to cast out demonic spirits. And so it uh, goes to a whole new level. And, and right before that event happened, and you may remember this if you're here last week, uh, David was, was pointing out uh, in the message last week that, that actually there was two conflict events that started. Like, first of all, uh, Jesus' family uh, came to get Jesus. They were convinced that he had come sort of out of his mind, that he had this whole messianic complex had gone to his head. And, and so they were, they were coming to retrieve him, take him back to his hometown of Nazareth. David mentioned last week that he was going to pass over that because we were going to cover it this week, and he was telling the truth, we are. And so, uh, so that after that, you know, it's this, this scene with the religious leaders uh, claiming to be uh, that he's from uh, Satan. So, uh, so today we're going to go back to those two, two uh, events, uh, the, the conflict from the outside, from, the, from his family, the conflict from the religious leaders, and, and we're going to talk about them uh, together. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to uh, turn to, to Mark chapter 3 and verse uh, 20. And as you're turning there, um, I want to talk about these, these two uh, events because Mark is going to do something that's actually very characteristic of Mark. I think it's the first time we've seen it in this gospel. 
But Mark has a particular technique of telling stories or of, of relating events. Uh, and scholars often call this the sandwich technique, which sounds like a very highly technical term, I know. But, uh, uh, but actually what Mark will often do is he'll take two events and he'll weave those stories together. So the way he does it is he starts by telling one event and then he stops right at the high point of the story and he breaks off. Yeah, has anyone ever heard that? Yeah, and he starts telling the second event and then when he finishes the second event, he goes back to the first event and finishes it, right? So, so Mark does this for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, it's just a great way to tell a story that it's, it's just, you know, heightens anticipation. Uh, think of your favorite shows on TV. They all do this. They have multiple storylines in any given episode. And what do they do? They start with one and then they kind of take it up to a point where you're really into it. Then they stop it and they go to another one. So this is a, a great storytelling uh, technique. But uh, secondly, uh, most scholars believe that Mark actually is doing this for, for even a, a, a more powerful reason, that he's taking these, by, by taking two events and interweaving them together, he's highlighting some spiritual truth that you may not have caught if you just told them separately, all right? So for example, for today, today what we're going to see is he starts off telling us the story of Jesus' family coming to get him because they think he's crazy. That's a good story, right? So he says they're on their way, er, stop, you know, and now we're going to go to second story about the religious leaders who's going to claim that Jesus is a warlock, right, finish that story. So you got conflict from his family, you got conflict uh, from the religious leaders, and then he's going to bring it all back together again to see one group of people uh, in this story that are not rejecting Jesus' leadership, that want to sit at his feet, come around him, that are his true family. Of course, so the whole point is, how do we become a person that's not rejecting Jesus like his family? How do we become like a person that's not rejecting Jesus like, his, like the religious leaders? How do we become one of those people that are receiving Jesus and part of his true family? And so uh, with that as a background, let's jump in. So chapter 3 and verse 20, there in your note sheet, the section, Jesus and his family, a spiritual uh, intervention. And so uh, it starts off in, in, in verse uh, 20, it says, then Jesus entered the house and again a crowd gathered. So let's set it up. A couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus' popularity is off the charts, that people are now coming not just from the Galilee, but they're coming from all over the country and even outside of the country, uh, a great distance, 100, 150 miles, to hear Jesus, to watch him perform miracles, heal the sick, uh, free people from demon possession. And if, if you were here two weeks ago, then you saw that right after that, Jesus stops, he goes up to the mountains uh, outside the Sea of, right above the Sea of Galilee, he spends a whole night in prayer. After a night in prayer, he chooses the 12 uh, men who will be the leaders of his movement, the 12 apostles. Remember that? And so that's where we left off. And so now at 320, it says now he's back in town, uh, presumably at Capernaum at Seaside. And so he's back in town, and, this, uh, uh, and he's teaching in a house, and again, a crowd gathers. And it was so busy that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Okay? So this popularity that was described earlier in the chapter, it's going to continue to the point you just can't even do life as normal. Remember, remember last time we were together, uh, we saw that Jesus was actually teaching from a boat now because there were so many people pressing into him to be healed. They had to get offshore to teach. So now you see it's even increasing. He can't even get a meal. And so in verse 21, when his family hears about this, and, and they're most likely living in Nazareth, which is about 30 miles away, his hometown, uh, they, they actually go to take charge of him. 
And in the Greek, the, the word there is to like take custody of, like to arrest him. It's like they're going to do a spiritual intervention. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but some of you have probably been involved in an intervention in your life. There's someone in your life that you love, you care about. Maybe they have an alcohol problem, a drug problem, some kind of other major issue. It's destroying their lives, destroying those around. And so you do an intervention, and usually you kind of spring this on the person. They don't know what's going to happen. You show up. You have them come down. You explain the facts. You each speak to the issues, and then you have a plan to help them get some help, right? So we, we call it intervention. Well, they're going to do a spiritual intervention because what they're, what they're seeing is that they're seeing that Jesus is getting in greater and greater danger. Remember that uh, John the Baptist uh, had just been arrested not that long before. And remember what John's message was. His message was the kingdom of God that's been promised by the prophets for a thousand years, it's about to come. It was a very strongly political message. And he had such a big following that King Herod got terrified of a political coup, so he arrested John. John's in prison. On top of that, uh, the religious leaders just last week we saw that they're not only looking for ways to kill Jesus, they're convinced he's a false prophet inspired by Satan. And so the pressure around Jesus is mounting, and I'm sure his family was concerned about this. They, they think that all this fame has gone to his head. He seems to have this messianic complex, you know, that he thinks he's God or something. He's obviously crazy. Um, it's interesting because later in his life, uh, well, I mean, later in the Gospel of John, we find out that during his ministry, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, right? So, so it's a little hard to believe your older brother is God, right? Like, lots of times they act as if they're God, but it's just really hard to know it, not seriously. And so uh, what, what we're going to find that after the resurrection, they came around. Hey, not bad trick, you know? And so maybe you are God. But uh, before that, they weren't into Jesus as a, as a the Messiah. And so uh, at this point, they're, they're just, I think they're all concerned about him. His, he's, in, he's in harm's way. If uh, we don't get him, this crowds are growing. He's going to get arrested. He may be killed. And so they're probably coming out of, out of a good heart, is my, is my guess. But anyway, so they're, they're going to come. And it says uh, that they, uh, when the family heard about it, they went to take charge of him. For they said what they say. He is out of his mind. He's lost it. You know? Uh, get the drugs, call, call, call the uh, clinic, right? Get the straight jacket ready. He's out of his mind. Okay, so, so now Mark stops the story there. Like, you want to know what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They're on their way. He says, okay, just hold on. And he tells the next story, this, this middle part of the sandwich. We call it a sandwich because it's like this first slice of bread. We just had it. Now we have the meat of the sandwich. Next, and now it's the second slice of bread. Uh, so we're going to skip the, the meat of the sandwich because David covered that last week when the religious leaders come. When you go to verse 31, we hit the second part of the sandwich. So Jesus' mother and brothers, now they're arriving. Now remember, day and age, there, is no phone, there are no phones, uh, no telegraph, no newspapers, no tweets, no uh, uh, texting. Um, they're traveling for 30 miles, probably took a couple days to get there. Haven't seen Jesus in a while. He has no idea, uh, at least at a natural level, they're coming, right? And so this is a big deal. So they, they show up, and uh, they're standing outside the house. I'm sure the place is packed like it always is. And uh, they send someone in to call him. So you got a picture of this, you know. They get this guy, probably a little skinny guy, and say, uh, uh, hey, you know, could you get into Jesus? I know he's teaching. The place is packed. We can't get in. Did you let him know? Just, I'm, I'm his mother, his brothers. We're here to see him. Could, could you, like, let him, you know, just know that maybe afterwards he's going to come out? And so this guy's going to be squeezing through. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And, and trying to get to Jesus. And, um, and so a crowd was sitting around him. Uh, so catch this. we got three groups of people now, right? 
We've got the family who thinks he's crazy. We've got the religious leaders who want to kill him because they think he's a false prophet and inspired by Satan. And then we've got this third group of people that are sitting around his feet, hanging on his words. And, and this would include the 12 disciples, the apostles we met earlier, right? So three groups of people. And so the question is, you know, as we start this study, uh, which person are you? You know, it's like, like, are you the person that uh, thinks Jesus is claimed to be God? He's kind of a crazy man. He's just like, he's just out of touch with reality. Are you, are you the person you see him like, he's a false teacher. He's really kind of a danger to the human race. It's probably good he did, you know, got, got rid of him. You know, or are you a person that sits at his feet? That's, that's why Mark's setting this up. Okay, so, so anyway, uh, so the crowd's sitting around him there, and uh, they tell him, your mother and your brothers, they're outside looking for you. Okay, so the message gets to him. And so Jesus says something really strange here. Now, if you've been a believer for a while, you've, you've read this before. This won't seem strange. You're a, dif- you're a disadvantage. <laughs> but if you've never heard this, you're a great advantage. Be- because I want you to just picture this. You're there. You've never heard this story. And Jesus looks up. He says, what? Um, who are my mother and my brothers? You're thinking maybe he is crazy, right? Because like, what, what do you mean, who's your mother? Who's your, like, what, what's wrong? What, what are you talking about, right? And I'm sure he lets that, that question just hang there for a moment. And I kind of some dramatic uh, pause. And then he looks at those seated around the circle, right there. They're there to listen, to learn, to follow. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. I'm sure he motions with his hand. And he says, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And in this moment, Jesus defines what it means to be born again. He defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He defines what it means to be part of his family, the family of God, the person that has a passion for the will of God in their life, right? So that's the that's that's passage. Now, here's what I want to do. In the time that we have today, a couple things. I want to lay out a couple principles about who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, that really flow out of what Jesus teaches here. Uh, and then we're going to come back and get real practical and say, okay, for your life, for my life, how are we doing uh, with this? And, and are we living out uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus? And so there in your note sheet's a section called The First Family, The DNA of Jesus. So let's just jump in, a couple principles that flow out of his teaching, and, and then we'll come back and apply it to our lives. So first of all, first principle goes like this that uh, first thing I want you to catch is that Jesus came uh, to create a new family. First thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that he came to create a family. Now, this is important because we live in the United States, one of the most individualistic cultures in the history of the world, right? So we don't think in terms of community. We think in terms of individual relationship. In fact, when we come to Jesus, we, say, we ask, do you want a personal relationship with God, right? We use that language. That, uh, and so uh, what Jesus wants us to understand is that he did not come just to restore our personal relationship with God as our Father. He came to restore our relationships as well with one another. So we become brothers and sisters. So, so the moment that a person becomes a follower of Jesus, the moment they're born again, that something supernatural happens in their life. And not only... Do they receive the DNA of Jesus that, that connects them to God as their father? But they receive the same DNA that every other Christ follower receives. And so, ne- so now there's a supernatural connection 
with every other family member. Okay, so when Jesus came, he didn't come just to restore us in our relationship with God and forgive us our sins. He came to create a new family, and we're all called to be part of that family. So the question is, you know, is it going to be a functional family or a dysfunctional family, right? So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but probably some of us would say, we, well, you know, how many came from a functional family? And then others would say, how many came from a dysfunctional family? See, one of the marks of a dysfunctional family is a lack of connection, isn't it? Like, if you grew up in a, a dysfunctional family, one of the marks of a dysfunctional family, they, they typically kind of often, they're often disconnected. They're kind of, everyone's doing their own thing, going their own directions. There's not a lot of care, not a lot of concern. There's not a lot of sharing of life. You don't, you don't help each other during the hard times. You don't celebrate the victories. You don't have a lot of fun. You don't enjoy being together. They're kind of disconnected. One of the marks of a healthy family is that uh, everyone is very well connected, enjoy spending time together, love one another, sharing life, uh, sharing the journey, shares the ups, shares the downs, help each other during the hard times they're doing life together. So you got, you got functional versus uh, dysfunctional. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that when we come to Jesus, we become part of a family. Now, it might be dysfunctional or functional. Like here at Rocky Peak, we may be functional or dysfunctional. But the moment you come to Jesus, by definition, you not only change your vertical relationship with God, it changes your horizontal relationship with all other followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? That Jesus came to create a family, and so he's, he's highlighting that in this, this passage. Now, it's interesting because uh, there's many terms uh, that we can talk, we can use, that the New Testament uses to describe what it means to become a follower of Jesus. So, for example, uh, we, we can talk about, we can, we can talk, or, 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 or even the movement of Jesus. Uh, remember that right before these two conflict events happen, Remember that uh, Jesus chose 12 men to lead his movement, the 12 apostles, right? And so when you think about the movement of Jesus, many different terms can be used to define it. So for example, um, different terms, different word pictures, metaphors. For example, in the Gospels, we often talk about entering the kingdom of God. You follow Jesus, you enter the kingdom, right? As you move out into the New Testament, one term that's often used is the church, and so we talk about being, when you become a follower of Jesus, you become part of the church. And, and uh, un unfortunately, we often think of church in terms of a building. That's not what the early church would have heard the word as. The word in Greek is the word ekklesia, which means an assembly or a gathering. And so when you become uh, a follower of Jesus, you become part of the gathering of Jesus, this community of Jesus. Um, the New Testament uses other terms. For example, uh, it'll talk about uh, the temple. That as followers of Jesus, when we become a Christian, we become part of the temple of God. And God dwells in us by his spirit. In fact, it says we're each like a living stone in this temple. Uh, it, later on, um, uh, in 1 Peter, Peter will say that when we come to Jesus, we become part of a royal priesthood. And so we're all serving our king as priests. And so we don't need a priest to go between to talk to God for us or to pronounce our forgiveness. We don't need that because we're all priests and, and we're together as this priesthood. Um, later on, the Apostle Paul, well, he'll talk about uh, the movement of Jesus. He'll call it the body of Christ. We're like a body. He's the head. Uh, we're the members, each different members. Now, here's what I want you to catch. For every one of these images of the movement of Jesus, it is a communal image. It's not an individualistic image. For every one of them. That, that we, we become a citizen of the kingdom. We become... Um, a stone of the temple. We become 
a member of the assembly. We become a, a, a priest of a priesthood. Uh, we, we become uh, a member of the body of Christ. You see what I'm saying? That, that this coming to Jesus is not just about our vertical relationship with God as Father. It's about uh, our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. But here's the thing. One of the most common and profound and powerful images the New Testament uses to describe what it means to be part of the movement of Jesus is this term family. And this is what Jesus says here. He looks around and says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? And so, for example, if you, if you stop and think about it, as you go in the New Testament, think of this family language that we're just so used to. We're so used to, we miss it. But like when you become a Christian, you become uh, born again, right? Born again. So it's a family term, isn't it? You're born again. And, then, and so now that you're born again, we become children of God. Family term. And, and now Jesus is our older brother. And we become uh, brothers and sisters under the same father. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you stop and think about it, it's, it's the most common and profound uh, term used throughout the, the New Testament. You see it over and over again. Like Paul's always saying, hey, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. It's very common. Um, there on your note sheet, I've just put some examples. Uh, one I didn't put, but uh, remember when Jesus taught us how to pray. What did he say? He said, uh, pray like this. Our what? Our Father. We just miss it. We miss it. It's family language. Look on your note sheet. There's so many verses I could have chosen. I just chose three of my favorites. Uh, in John 20, this is where Jesus has just uh, risen from the dead, and so he meets Mary outside the tomb, and he says, he says go to my whom? Go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. See, the family language. Uh, Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I, I love 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, is mentoring this younger pastor, Timothy, on how to lead uh, several congregations that he's over in the city of Ephesus. He says, as you, as you relate to different people in the congregation, here's how you should think of it. And so he says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he was, were your what? Your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute uh, purity, okay? And so, so this becomes important because what, here's what I want you to catch. Jesus is casting vision for our lives, okay? Jesus is casting vision for, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We often think in very individualistic terms. It means that I'm forgiven, uh, I, God's not my father, uh, I am on my way to heaven, so we think very individualistic. And Jesus wants to expand that out so you don't need anything like that. When you become a follower of mine, you're born again. You become part of a family. And so it's either a dysfunctional family or a functional family, but you become part of a family. And this is so important because in our culture, because of its individualistic uh, uh, ways, you often hear people say this. You may have said this to yourself. You'll meet someone and you say, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe died for sins? Yes. Have you asked him in your life as your personal savior? Yes. Where do you go to church? I don't really go to church. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I don't really. I'm not in a church. I'm in Jesus. I'm not really in church. Yeah. And usually what's happened is that they've had a bad church experience. 
right? They, they've happened to fall in with some really dysfunctional brothers and sisters. And they're like, uh, I'm out on my own. I'm doing this on my own, right? And I get that. But the solution, right, the solution to that is not to withdraw and become a dysfunctional family. The solution is to say, what does it look like to be a functional family, right? Like, like how many of us say, hey, yeah, I grew up in a dysfunctional family, and it's just such a bummer. I never want to be part of a family. No, no, what we say is that I want to have my own family, and I want to be functional, right? Because you, we see the beauty of family. Um, it, you'll see this sometimes in our culture. You'll meet someone, and you'll say, oh, so where do you go to church? Oh, you know, I'm not really in a church that much. I, I go sometimes, maybe once a month, every six weeks or something like that. Uh, well, great, where do you go? Well, it just depends, you know? Just kind of whoever's teaching and... You know, what, just kind of what, what I'm in the mood for, you know, I'm single, so if we're teaching on marriage, I go somewhere else. Um, he's just, you know, whatever that, you know, it's like, I feel like hearing John MacArthur today. I feel like hearing Dudley today. I used to go hear Francis, but now I podcast him. You know, it's just like, whatever the thing is, you know, that, that but you see this mentality, right? It's me and Jesus, and, and church becomes for me just kind of a, something, you know, sometimes, time, you know, see. But what I want you to catch is that Jesus' vision for our life is so different. That he rescued us and saved us, not just to restore our relationship with self, but to create a new community that's a family. What we're deeply connected, deeply devoted, uh, growing together, loving one another, sharing life, laughing together, crying together, taking care of each other in, in the hard times, challenging you. This is Jesus' vision. It's his vision for your life. It's a vision for my life. The question is, are we going to live out that vision? See? Okay, number two. The second thing that jumps out at me in this passage is that the new birth uh, creates a new passion. When we come to Jesus, we're born again into his family, uh, that that new birth creates a new passion. And specifically, it's a passion for the will of God in our life. In other words, when someone is born again, one of the telltale sides that they've truly received the DNA of Jesus, they've truly been born again, is there's a new hunger there's a new desire, there's a new commitment to please God, okay? Not that we're always gonna do it perfectly any more than the first disciples that we're studying did it perfectly, right? As you study their lives, they're often full of fear, lack faith, slow to get it, argumentative, selfish, self-absorbed, right? So we're gonna see that in their lives, and so, so can we be, you know? But, but what you see about those disciples is that they're not on the outside of the house saying Jesus is crazy. They're not on the outside of the house saying we need to arrest him, he's a false prophet. They're sitting at his feet. They're hanging on his words. They want to grow. They want to know God. They want to understand how to follow him. They're, they're doing the best they can. They're, they're, they're pursuing Jesus. It's one of the marks of a follower of Jesus. It's one of the signs. And so um, this makes a lot of sense because if you've ever studied the life of Jesus in depth, and I don't know if you've ever had the chance to do that, but I remember as a young man in my early 20s, that one point uh, in my life, I said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to understand Jesus. I want to study his life in depth. And so I spent a, a fair amount of time just about just kind of reading through his life. And, you know, there was one thing that shocked and surprised me that I'd never seen. Even though I was a Christian, knew the Bible fairly well, what I'd never seen. But as you study the life of Jesus, what stands out is that the driving passion of Jesus' life was not you and me. The, the driving passion of his life was not saving the world. It, it was important to him, don't, don't get me wrong. But as you read, it becomes very clear, the driving passion of Jesus' life was to please his father. Nothing meant more to Jesus than his relationship with his father, 
loving his father, knowing his father, pleasing his father. It was a driving passion of his life. And you see, he says over and over again, he'll say things like, hey, I've come not to do my will, but the will of my, the one who sent me. He says, my words are not my own, they're the words of him who sent me. The things I do, I'm not doing on my own, they're, they're do- I'm just doing what the father shows me. He gets to the end of his life, father, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. His driving passion of Jesus' uh, life, I like to put it like this, he lived his life for the audience of what? It's like, like he, does he love us? Yes, he loves us. Is he passionate? Yes, he is. But can I tell you, there's someone that Jesus is more passionate about than you. It's his father. That he lives for his father. And, and so he models that for us. And so, for example, in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he sends his men into town. He's hungry. He says, hey, we're going to get, get McDonald's, get some McNuggets or whatever. Head on back. And so while he's there, he's talking with this woman at the well. And, uh, and so he begins to share with her about the living water. You remember that passage? So the guys come back and say, Jesus, we've got the food. You know, remember you're so hungry. Here you go. And, and Jesus says, look, I'm busy right now. I've got something more important going on. And I want you to see what he says. In, in John 4, he says, my food, uh, in other words, that which strengthens me, uh, that which in, in energizes, empowers me, sustains me. Think what food does for you. Uh, he says, my food, that which energizes me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what energizes me, okay? So when you stop and think about that, then it makes sense that this is the DNA of Jesus, that when someone is born again, one of the telltale signs they've truly become a Christ follower is there's this new hunger, there's this new passion, there's this new commitment to live for the will of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who are my sisters? He says, those who do the will of God. Like, like, like not because they're earning it, but because it's proof that they've been born again. It's proof that, that God has come into their life, that the DNA of Jesus is in them. All right, so those are the two foundational principles that Jesus came to create a family, that our relationship with God is not just personal, it's corporate. Uh, and then secondly, that one of the signs a person has truly become part of the family is there's a new hunger, there's a passion, there's a commitment uh, to find God's will and do that. All right, so, so those are the two, the two, two foundational principles. Now, here's, uh, what I wanna do next is I wanna ask a couple questions to see how we're doing in this, how we're fulfilling Jesus' vision for our life. And so there in your note sheets, a section called The First Family, Two critical questions. Let's jump in. Number one. The first question then is, are you connected? So we've seen, and one of the marks of a healthy family is that they are connecting. They're doing life together. They love being together. They love sharing life, talking, laughing, crying, uh, uh, going through life, helping one another out. That one of the marks of a healthy family is that we're, they're connected, they're deeply connected. We've seen that this is Jesus's goal for our life, it's his vision, that we would not just be Lone Ranger Christians, but we would be in community, deeply connected, living that out. Okay, so, so the question is then in your life, would you honestly describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, would you describe yourself as deeply connected to the family of God? Like, would you say that you're doing life on your own, more as a Lone Ranger Christian, or would you say, I'm deeply connected, I'm doing life with my brothers and sisters in Christ? How would you answer that? Okay? Now, let's start with the basics. So I think at a basic level, <clears throat> one, one question would be, 
Um, are, are you even uh, investing time and energy into these kinds of relationships? Uh, you know, so, so for example, um, uh, in the, uh, the New Testament, we have an image of what it looks like uh, to be deeply committed and deeply devoted to family, all right? So there in your note sheet, I put a passage from Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, let's set it up. Uh, Jesus has just left for heaven uh, 10 days before. He tells his followers, about 120 of them, I want you to stay in Jerusalem uh, until the Holy Spirit comes. He's going to empower you to live this new life. And so 10 days later, on the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And if you, if you read the story, you remember that Peter gets up and he shares uh, about the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He calls people to repentance and 3,000 people come to faith that day, okay? So given the, if they hold to normal percentages, that means with, with, with kids, probably 5,000, 6,000 people become to Christ that day. So on that day, the church starts as a megachurch, okay? It starts as a megachurch. And so, so now, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that need to happen. You know, we gotta hire an executive pastor. We got, you know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, get, who's gonna do life groups? You know, like we got a lot of stuff that, that you know, I mean, 5,000 people that previously weren't a community are now overnight a community. And here's what you see. What you see is the moment that they're born again, the moment that they have the DNA of Jesus, the moment that they become part of the family of God, instinctively, like geese flying south, instinctively, they begin to relate as family, instinctively, okay? And so they, they begin to draw together in community, become deeply connected, deeply devoted. Uh, there in your note sheet, Luke records this right after the 3,000 come, and, and he says, they, these new believers, they devoted themselves. I want you to circle that, it's very important. So I want you to think like, what comes to your mind when you think of someone being devoted to something, right? It's a deep commitment, isn't it? High level commitment, time, energy, money, whatever. They devoted themselves to four things. Here they are. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Okay, so for, so for the last three years, the apostles that we're studying have been traveling with Jesus, learning what it means to follow him. When he left, he said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to recruit followers, and I want you to teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And so, so now they are passing on the teaching of Jesus, just like we're studying here in Mark, right? What is the gospel of Mark? Mark is the apostle's teaching, the apostle Peter coming through Mark. And so they're doing exactly what we're doing every weekend. They're gathering together to settle the apostle's teaching. What does it look like to follow and obey Jesus, right? Probably most of this, a lot of this is probably taking place in large group settings. We'll see this later. They're, they're, uh, they're, gonna, be, they're gonna be meeting in the temple courts, which uh, the temple in Jerusalem, three football fields long on each side, huge complex, big place for five, 6,000 people to gather together and, and to be taught. So they're gonna have apostles teaching, number one. Number two, they're devoted to the fellowship. Now, this is the Greek word koinonia. Some of you have heard of that before, but it has to do with a sharing. And so this, this new community, they're really devoted to the community, to the shared life, to doing life together. Uh, third thing, uh, they're devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, most scholars would agree that what it's referring to is, is two things here. It's uh, sharing meals in each other's homes, but it's also celebrating communion the breaking of bread, uh, remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus in communion. So it's kind of worship 
uh, sharing meals, but there's also worship involved. And then we go on, and the, and the fourth thing is to prayer. So they're spending time together, large groups, small groups. Uh, they're, they're spending time praying, talking with their father about what they're doing together, which is what prayer is all about. Right? And so, so he paints this picture. Then he goes on, and he says, uh, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. And so what we see in, the, in, the, in this first church in Jerusalem, this was not necessarily church as the church, uh, as the church moved out uh, into the Roman world, but for these first few months or whatever this was here, they were really sharing all of their goods and, and resources. So apparently as the movement spread, uh, that wasn't like the norm for it, but there was just a general financial sharing as we'll see. And so all the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had needs. So they're actually meeting real needs. And every day, notice that every day, it's a very high commitment level. Every day they were meeting together in the temple courts, so these large areas, but they also broke bread in their homes. There's large group, there's small groups, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They're praising God, so they're worshiping, and uh, they're enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So every day, more people were joining the family. Every day, more people were being born again. Everyone born again, we're incorporating in that very inclusive movement, not exclusive, us four and no more. Uh, it's a very inclusive movement family. All right, welcoming in new family members, all right? And so uh, what you see here is you see this movement of Jesus, this family of God. I want you to catch this. They're deeply connected and they're deeply devoted, right? And so this is Jesus' vision for his family. And so the question then uh, for our lives, for your life, is would you say that as a follower of Jesus, you're deeply connected to the family of God and you're deeply devoted to the family of God? Or are you doing life more as a lone ranger? So let's start with basics. Well, let's just talk about, uh, uh, I'm going to go to a couple different levels here. Let's start with basics. Uh, for some of you, like, let's just talk about these weekend services, what we have here. Like, I don't know how you look at these weekend services, what your image of that is. I think for a lot of people in America, I think of church as something we do. You know, it's like something we do. You, you, something you, you go to church, did you go to church? Yes, for the church. But remember, the church is the gathering. It's the gathering of Jesus. And so when we gather on the weekends, what are we doing? We're coming together as the family of God, aren't we? We're coming together to listen and to seek our big brother, Jesus. We're coming under the leadership of the Father, uh, we're coming together to touch base with one another that we've already developed friendships with outside, encourage one another. We're coming to, to pray, to seek God. It's a family moment, okay? And so, so think of the big family thing, you know, like Christmas or, 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 uh, or Thanksgiving. Like, you don't want to miss those events, right? Because they're, like, it's your family a gathering. And so the question is, as a follower of Jesus, are you deeply connected and deeply devoted to what happens here on the weekends? I'll tell you something, I've seen a trend in our culture, and there's a lot of trend in the Christian movement that I like in our culture, but there's certain things over the years I've seen that I think is a negative trend. When I was growing up, uh, most Christians just went to church at something they did. They didn't check their calendar, they didn't check their to-do list, they just went to church. It was a high commitment, that's like what we do. What I've seen is in the last 20 years, there's a decreasing commitment like that. What I find is that there's increasingly a sense of, well, I kind of go to church when there's nothing else going on. Right? If there's no great waves that weekend, 
right? There's not, you know, some kind of football game that I need to go to. If there's not, you know, what, there's, some, if there's nothing else happening. And so what happens then is that we fall into a pattern where, for many of us, where we're com- the family is meeting, but we're only there maybe half the time or, or a quarter of the time, right? And, and I think we've kind of slid into this, and it just kind of it betrays the fact that we miss what it means to be together as family, what, what's happening here. Because what happens here, apostles teaching, worship, the, the things that happen here, they don't happen anywhere else in your life in that same way. Right, that, that what happens here, and I'm not talking about here, but it could be any church, but what happens in large group gatherings is, is really a unique, it's an important part of family. And so, so, so are you deeply connected, deeply devoted to large group? But here's the second question. Then are, are you deeply committed to a small group of believers? Now, just to be clear, uh, this is not an advertisement for life groups. Um, because you may say, Mike, I, I'm not in one of our life groups, but I meet with a group of five brothers or five couples. And we, we've, we've been meeting together. We, we meet together and we share our life and we, we talk about what we're learning. We pray together. We support one another. And it's just like, well, great, great. There you go. It doesn't have to be a life group, right? But it's why we built our whole church around life groups because most people don't have that. Naturally, they won't find it on their own. We had to create it to happen, to happen. So, so do you have a group like that? Or for you, is your Christian experience basically you and Jesus and come to church, hear some things, and then leave and you're disconnected? Is that, what, what I'm saying is Jesus' vision for your life is much bigger. It's much grander. It's much deeper. It's much richer, you see? Um, but let's take it to the next level. Let's not just talk about attending or being part of a large group or a small group. Let's talk about the attitude you bring to that experience. Like when you come to a weekend gathering like this, let me ask you, are you coming with expectation? Are you coming with anticipation? Are you coming with a hunger in your heart to do the will of God? Are you coming like those first disciples to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen and learn? Are, are you coming to this gathering on the weekends? Are you coming saying, God, I am coming. I am coming because I want to be with you. I want to be with my brothers and sisters. I want to sit at your feet. God, would you speak to me this weekend? Are you coming with expectation? You know, or, if, or as the truth is that when you come, as you've often been out till maybe 2 o'clock the night before, you're exhausted, you're coming in 15 minutes late, you miss the beginning of you know, the family prayer kind of thing you know, over, over Thanksgiving. Like you miss that. You're, just, you're, you're, whole, you're, just, you're, you're coming, but it's just really not coming with an attitude of I'm coming to meet with the father and the family, you see? It makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. How do you visualize what happens here on the weekend? Let's talk about your small group. You go to your small group. Uh, are you coming prepared? Have you done your work ahead of time? If you're, whatever your study, have you invested in that? Have you been praying for your family members throughout the week, your, the people in your, your small group? Are you coming with a sense of heightened expectation and anticipation? I'm coming with the people of God as if these were the only people of God in the San Fernando Valley, as if these were the only people of God in Simi Valley. Are, are you coming uh, saying, I wanna, I'm meeting with the family of God, and what does Jesus want to do in our midst? We're coming to meet with our older brother. We're coming to learn from one another. We're coming to love one another. We're coming to pray for one another. We're coming to support and help and take care of one another. Are you coming with that anticipation, you see? Or are we simply just kind of going through the motions? It makes a huge difference. 
I'm telling you, uh, in my life group right now, I don't, I don't know why this is happening. You know, the Holy Spirit just sometimes breathes, kind of blows through a church or blows through a group at uh, his own time. It's kind of mysterious. I don't think there's anything we've done that necessarily to make this happen. But, but this session, the, the group that I'm in, uh, and I'm not, I don't lead the group, I'm just in the group, but the group that, that I'm in, that Lynn and I are in, uh, it's, just, it's suddenly gone to a whole new level. And I don't even begin to understand it. I don't even begin to But there is a sense of expectation that's growing. There is a sense that we are coming to meet with Jesus. We are coming as brothers and sisters to meet with Jesus. We want to hear from him. We want to worship him. We want to spend time in his presence. Uh, we want to learn together, support one another. There is a sense something is going on. Something is going on, you see. It, it's a whole new thing. We've been together for quite a while, but God's doing a new thing. Do you think maybe in your life or your group, God wants to do a new thing, you see? And part of it begins with this whole vision piece. What do, how do we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Do we just see it as a vertical thing? We have some friends at church. Or, or do we see it as a vertical and horizontal where we are the family of God? And he's gonna use us and he wants to build deeply committed, deeply connected relationships to help transform our lives. All right, so, so that's the first question. Are you connecting? Uh, the second question is, it's kind of a big question, but I need to ask it because Jesus asks it. Uh, and so here's the question. Are you doing God's will? In your life, you know, what's your blink on that? What's your initial reaction to that? Even when I ask the question, are you doing God's will? Jesus makes it very clear that the, the mark of, a, of someone who's been born again in the family is that they have this new commitment, this passion for God's will. So he says, uh, who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? He says, and he looks from the circle, kind of waves, he says, these are my mother, my brothers, sisters, uh, those who do the will of God. This is, this is the mark of someone's been born again. So I want you to think with me about this. In the New Testament, there are several different ways, just like there's several different ways to describe the movement of Jesus, there's several different ways to describe a Christ follower. Like, for example, uh, we could talk about a Christ follower who's been someone who's been born again, right? We can talk about a Christ follower as someone who has accepted Jesus in their life. We can talk about a Christ follower who has received Christ. We can talk about someone who's following Christ. There's many different metaphors, uh, word descriptions, and they're all helpful because they all help define the other. Like, when you put them all together, you get a, a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Is one who believes Jesus, accepts him, receives him, follows him. But Jesus throws out something new today that we're not used to thinking of it this way. He says, let me define what it means to be a member of my family. He says, what it means is to do the will of God. That's what it, that's what it means. In fact, look, I don't want you to miss this. Let's look back and see what he says in Mark chapter 3. He looks around those at the circle in verse 34, and he says, here are my mothers and brothers. So he defines what it means to be part of his family, what it means to be born again. He says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever, what does he say? Does, let's say it all together. It's good for us. Whoever what? Does God's will. Okay, so the mark of someone who has been truly born again is that they're a person who does God's will. Now, obviously not perfectly, Right, just like the disciples uh, failed at times, we're gonna fail at times. Uh, we still have our dark side. We still have that magnetic pull to what the Bible calls our flesh, get that? Uh, there's gonna be times when we fail. There's gonna be times we pick other gods, God over our life instead of the true God. There's gonna be times we have to pick ourselves. I get all that, 
But what Jesus is saying is that, that at the core level, that one of the signs someone's truly been born again is that they have a passion for God's will in, in their life. And so this helps us define all the other terms. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it means to believe that he's the son of God and to trust him with our life in such a way that we follow him. That's what it means to believe. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to receive Jesus as your Messiah, your king, and come under his leadership. What does it mean to accept Christ? Accept him as what? Accept him as Lord. The first creed of the early church was Jesus is Lord. To accept Jesus means to accept him as your Lord over your life, to come under his leadership. And we could go on and on. But Jesus says, let's just put it this way. To become part of my family means you're someone who has a passion for my will, who's doing the will of God. That's interesting. The apostle John was one of the 12 who was there that day in that house. And uh, years later, towards the end of his life, he writes a letter called 1 John, and he talks, he reflects about what does it mean to be part of the family of God? What does this mean? And there in your note sheet, let's see how he puts it. Uh, there in your note sheet, he says, uh, no one who is born of God, or has been born of God, will continue to sin. Now notice this. He's not saying that we will never sin, because in the previous two chapters, he has said that if anyone claims to be without sin, they are a liar. And he said, so when we do sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So John's not saying that we'll never stumble, we'll never fail. But what he's, what he's saying is that when someone has been born of God, the DNA of Jesus has come in them, that there is a change at a heart level, that they cannot continue long-term in a life of continual rebellion. It's not who they are. There's something within them that draws them aback. And so he goes on, he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's what? Seed remains. Now he's getting very graphic here. He's taking out this analogy. Uh, how does someone get born? Well, you have to have seed placed in a woman, right? There has to be sperm placed in a woman. So he's using this uh, kind of this uh, DNA analogy and he says, because God's seed, God's sperm, God's DNA uh, remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And so this is how we know the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, okay? And so Jesus is defining what does it mean to be part of his family. John picks that up and says, let me, let me kind of uh, unpack that a little bit more. That when you're born of God, uh, the Holy Spirit comes in your life, the life of Jesus invades, and so at a core level, yes, you have this pull towards the dark side, but a poor, at your core level, it's not who you are anymore. The deepest part of you, you're a child of God. You have this DNA of Jesus in you. There's this pull. And so what does this mean for us as, as followers of Jesus? Well, here's what it means. If you're part of the family of God, you've accepted Jesus in your life, you've been born again, what this means, and I want you to catch this, is that you will never be truly happy until you are fully surrendered to the will of God in your life. You'll never be happy. Now, we can run after other gods, can't we? Have any of you ever done, I mean, I've done this. Have you ever done this where, you, where it's like you know what God wants you to do and you say, no, I'm going the other direction? Ever done that? Yeah, of course, right. Okay, so, so we, can all, we can run after other gods. We can bow down before other idols. We can, we can bow down before the God of pleasure. We can bow down before the God of possessions. 
We can bow down before the God of power. We can bow down before the God of prestige or position. We can bow down before the God of popularity. We can bow down before the God of a person, another person that we're going to put over God. We can, we can do that as Christ followers. We can worship other idols. In fact, in 1 John, the very last verse, he says, children, guard yourself from idols. So we can, we can worship other gods. But here's what I can tell you. If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've been born again, you cannot worship other gods and be happy about it. Right? You can't. It's impossible. You may enjoy the evening. You may enjoy the ride. You may uh, be distracted, right? But you can't be happy. And you know why? It's because it's not who you are. It's not who you are. Like you have been changed at a core level. And so when you are not doing the will of God in your life, I know your life. I don't, even, I don't care what it is. I know your experience if you're, if you're a true follower of Jesus, if you've been born again. You are irritable. You are frustrated. You lack peace in your life. You are agitated and you are empty. Right? And that's just the truth. Now, let me tell you this. If you can pursue the dark side and you're not frustrated and you're not irritated and you're not agitated and you're not empty and you're just doing fine and doesn't bother you, chances are you're not born again. Right? You're not born again. You may be a churchgoer. You may be religious. But chances are you're not born again because John can't be much clearer about this. The mark of a follower of Jesus is there is a passion at the core of your being. You can put it off, you can ignore it, you can try to douse it, but there is a desire deep inside of you to do the will of God. And until you surrender to that, you will never be happy because you're not being who you are. And Satan comes along and he will lie to you. He'll tell you that these other desires you have, that that's who you are. He will talk, because that's what he wants to convince you of. No, that you are. You are. You're a person. You're addicted to porn. You're addicted to this alcohol. You're addicted to power. You care about people. That, that's who you are. This whole Christian thing, that's not who you are. You'll never be that. You know why he's trying so desperately to lie to you? Because he fears the truth. And the fear is that the truth is he's afraid that you're going to wake up and realize that's not who you are, that you are been born again in Jesus. You have a passion for God. And if you ever learn that and surrender to that, your life is going to be changed. You're never going to be the same. And you're going to go ahead and change the world. That's what's going to happen. And so if you're here today, you're my brother, you're my sister, then my challenge to you is just be who you are. Stop messing around. Stop taking roads that, you, that end up to be dead end over and over again. Stop pursuing that person. They're not a believer. Stop dating them. Stop screwing around, right? Stop watching the porn. Get connected to some brothers. Share your heart. Share the journey. Let them call Jesus out of your life. Grow up. Be a man who loves women and protects women, doesn't objectify and uses women. Be who you are. You see, you're a man, you're a woman whose top priority is climbing the corporate ladder. Knock it off. Be who you are. Make Jesus Lord. 
experience his life-giving power. The DNA of Jesus is there, and if you surrender, he will transform your life. He will change you at a core level. You will become the person you're created to be. This is who you're created to be, you see? You're part of the family. Now, if you're here today and you're saying, Mike, I'm not a believer in Jesus yet. Honestly, in the past, I've been outside thinking Jesus was crazy, or I've been like one of those ones, yeah, like I can kill Christians, like get rid of them, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's who you are, but you say something is happening to me. And I've, the last few weeks, the last months, whatever, I've moved from outside the house, I'm in the inside the house, I've been listening to Jesus, I'm, I'm taken with him, he's captured my heart, I wanna be part of the family. Well, the good news is, is that if you want in, the invitation is there. If you wanna be part of the family of Jesus, you want to have your sins forgiven. You want to be transformed. You want to receive the DNA, a new heart that is there for the asking. You just need to surrender your life to Jesus. I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's pray. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus, and, and, and God's just been working in your life today. Maybe you're, you're sensing you're not really connecting like you're supposed to be and like his vision for your life, or maybe there's another God you've been worshiping, and you're, you're in that frustrated spot Wow, what a great time. Just We're going to be spending a couple songs in worship here, uh, talking about our Father, talking about surrendering to His will. What a great time just to, to come back and ask Him to forgive you and get back on track and, and be the person you're called to be. Uh, but if you're here today and, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you want to be, I want to give you that chance. It's the simplest thing in the world. You just have to turn and ask Him. Ask Him to be your God. Uh, ask Him to forgive you. And so I'm going to pray a very simple prayer right now. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, pray along with me in your mind, in your heart, and Jesus will come in and you'll be born again. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for my life of rebellion. I ask you to forgive me for my past and to cause me to be born again. I ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you would fill me now and teach me how to follow you. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just prayed that, I would love to share that decision with you. First of all, I just want to welcome you to the family. But, but this week, I would love to drop you a, a letter. Just some, here's some steps as you pursue God's will in your life. Here's some things to be praying about. Talk with you about baptism, some other things. And so uh, in a couple of minutes, as we go into worship, we're taking the offering, there's a connect card inside of your program, a little card. Just write me a note. Fill it out, write me a note, say, hey, Mike, I prayed that prayer about Jesus. We'll send you that letter this week and get you going. And so, Lord, now we come. We come as your family. We come as born-again people. We come as people who have received the DNA of Jesus. We come uh, with a passion in our hearts to grow and to love you. We thank you that we are no longer orphans. We thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that we are brothers and sisters. We thank you for this new community at Rocky Peak. You've called us to, to live out the life of a functional family. We thank you that you've called us to live for your will. We pray that your power would be released in our life. We pray as we come, as we confess our sins, you'd forgive us now. We pray that you'd empower us to follow in new ways and new strength. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And that, that is the heart cry of the Christ follower, the one who sits at the feet, not on the outside, uh, saying he's crazy and lost his mind, not on the other side saying he's a false teacher, but there are those who sit at his feet and those who have been born again. And Jesus says, these are my 
mother and my brothers and my sisters, those that they do the will of God in their life. It's the heart cry of the Christ Father. It's the DNA that's been birthed in us. Father, have your way. And that's when even when we're not even walking with God, our heart still longs for that because it's who we are. And so may this be a week where you are connecting at new levels. Maybe it's something you need to be praying about and asking God next steps. What does that look like in your life? Uh, maybe it's uh, how you approach your life group this week. Uh, maybe it's your weekend attendance. Maybe it's using your gifts to connect, serve. Uh, maybe it's an area of your life you've been holding out to God. You've been holding off. There's been someone he's asking you to forgive and you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. There's uh, something he's asking you, a step he's asking you to take and you've been saying no and and you know the frustration, you know the emptiness that comes. And just a week to say yes, to say and with arms wide open, God, have your way, have your way in my life. And watch what God does. Watch how your life springs to life. Watch how you begin to grow and change and your life is transformed. All he needs is that, that act of arms open wide and, and saying, God, I want to live for your will. And if you will change my heart, and if you will put it in me, I will do it. It's not something we do on our own. It's something we just say, I'm yours, have your way. So may this be a week like that. And then I hope you can join us next week as we come back and we continue this series. Next week, we're entering like a three-week mini-series. It's called The Stories of Jesus. And uh, Mark, you know, Mark, uh, Jesus was a master storyteller. He told these short stories we call parables. And uh, of all the stories, Mark's only gonna choose a handful the next three weeks he's gonna talk to us about, but they're, they're critical. They're the ones that Mark felt were most important for us to understand who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, how we grow, the march of his kingdom, the end of time, what's gonna happen in the future, uh, what it means to be a part of this movement. And so I hope you can join us each and every week as we continue to grow. Until then, may the Lord be with you. May the Holy Spirit be filling you. May you be under the leadership of God your Father. May you be connecting well with other brothers and sisters as together we, we join forces to unleash this movement of Jesus, this family of God. God bless. Love you guys. See you next weekend.